For the News and Observer, I'm Dawn Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, April 3rd, 2023. I'm here today with my politics team colleague, Lars Dolder. Lars, let's talk about, I mean, goodness gracious, what a week. Yeah, drama on the House floor. Budget from the House came out. Override, first successful override in the House in four years, I think it's been. Uh, So a lot has happened, a lot to talk about. And I just remember that the week started with uh, the Medicaid expansion ceremony. Oh, yeah, on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's there was at one point the talk in the press room this week. So the FUBAR meter, those of you that are familiar with it, then, you know, you can figure out what the acronym stands for, uh, is gives you sort of a gauge on what's going on at the legislature. And the way it moves has to be a consensus of the press corps. And the press corps talked about it so many times about moving it, but then was so busy. We were all so busy. We didn't, or the the person we wanted to chime in wasn't there. And then they came back and someone else left and someone said, no, I have to be on TV or I need to go update this story. And so we never actually moved the FUBAR meter, but rest assured um, it's going up. Yes, it'll move soon. So let's start off talking about the, the veto override. Uh, everybody was at the Medicaid expansion ceremony on Monday, so I don't think that needs any sort of any sort of recap other than to remind people that Medicaid expansion actually doesn't go into effect until the state budget is passed. So we'll talk more about the budget in a little bit. Uh, so the veto override happened, was it Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning this past week? Um, every day was a blur, and it was, it was really fast. It was the 9.30 session, and there was some controversy when the session started about House Republicans changing the rules to make it easier to call an override vote. But they didn't do that. Uh, Moore, Speaker Moore had told reporters, you know, after we questioned about it multiple times, that he would let Democrats know. And, of course, the governor is the Democrats. And when he vetoes something, I, I would assume that he tells the Democrats in the legislature of, of any sort of timing if people want to be there for the vote. So the calling the vote wasn't a surprise, like it was that last successful override in 2019 and all that drama there um, over the budget. So this was uh, overriding a, uh, a gun bill, and it wasn't as much, it was the, the process is what Democratic, uh, uh, the minority party leader Robert Reeves had. So I'm going to play a clip for you all of him talking to reporters on the floor after the vote. He took an issue with the vote, not that, again, it was it was calendared, everybody knew it was coming, but just how it played out where there wasn't any d- debate. Rules Chair Dustin Hall said there would just be the vote, no debate. There had been plenty of debate, and Speaker Moore said that too, and that was within the rules. So, But Reeves uh, took issue, and we'll, we'll, here's a little bit of what he was telling reporters on the floor after. It's not about politics. It's about the fact that there are 120 people in here and every one of them deserves to be heard. And if 120 people wanted to get heard today, they deserve to be heard. If 120 people wanted to amend this bill today, they deserve to be able to amend this bill. If 120 people in here today have different opinions, they deserve for those opinions to be heard. That's what this is about. So again, when this gets, somebody tries to turn this into a, oh, here Democrats are about villains again. No. If we were voting on the steak cookie today, that person deserves to be heard if they want a different cookie. All right. So that, again, was Robert Reeves, the minority leader in the House. He is a Chatham County Democrat. So, Lawrence, let's talk about you and I are both in the 
in the chamber, what it was like with that actual vote. And the gallery was full with advocates, supporters, and also students. So how did that come into play? Yeah, so that clip was taken after in a an impromptu gaggle with reporters. We chased him down after they went into recess. And it's one of the most impassioned speeches I've heard from Robert Reeves. He really felt strongly about what had happened. As you mentioned earlier, he didn't take issue with the process. In fact, he commended Speaker Tim Moore for having abided by the the informal rules that they had established between parties that he wouldn't surprise them. Uh, just again for a little context, uh, it was on Wednesday that this happened. Tuesday, the Senate had vetoed, which they have a supermajority. It was really nothing to it. Uh, they could have passed it. They did pass it to the House that afternoon, and the House could have taken it up, but they didn't. They waited till the next morning. Um, it's interesting to think if it might have actually gone better for Democrats had they done it on Tuesday, because Wednesday, three Democrats were absent from the floor. That was Ray Cotham and Brockman. Uh, who later said that they had some medical situations and other issues that prevented them from being there. But anyway, whatever the reasons, Democrats didn't have the votes. They were prevented from debating. And so in the moment, before that gaggle with Reeves, he used a point of personal privilege to apologize to students who were up in the gallery for what they had witnessed there. He said that it was uh, supposed to be a deliberative body where you could see open debate, where representatives had the opportunity to express their opinions, and that had been stifled, he said. And so he apologized to them for seeing an ugly side of politics. And then Representative Torbett, the, um, the I believe he's Stanley Republican, uh, also talked to the students in the gallery who, you know, probably weren't even paying attention, honestly, and uh, said, that this is actually how the process, you know, this was in line with what they can do. And there was a lot of debate other times. And it's been interesting to see, I feel like more this session, lawmakers have talked to people in the gallery other than the gallery, um, for those that haven't been in the chambers, a sort of second floor balcony that like kind of um, goes around the edges of the chamber. And that's where the, the public sits. Uh, and so sometimes they, um, you know, extend courtesies of the floor and recognize people in the gallery. That's usually how it goes, but they don't always direct them. Sometimes students have come to sessions where there is nothing going on and there's two lawmakers in there and Speaker Moore will say like, um, you know, sorry, nobody's here. If you guys come back later, you know, we'll actually do things because sometimes there's space, sometimes there's not. But Reeves really felt strongly that there needed to be more debate. And he had told us, uh, like you were saying, when, when reporters were talking to him on the floor right after the session, that Representative Marvin Lucas, a Democrat who had voted initially for the bill and, and did not vote to override, was going to talk about that and that he had postponed his uh, medical point or something with his, um, with his broken leg and surgery. But the other three Democrats were missing. Again, that was Cotham, Brockman, and, and Ray. And I believe they've told you know various reporters the reasons why they were missing, but the extra scrutiny is also because those are among the Democrats who are in general um, going to vote, have voted with with the Republican majority. So that gives them extra Yeah. And so looking forward, to the big takeaway, I guess, is has this set a precedent for override votes to come? Speaker Moore has said consistently leading up to this point, he was confident that they'd have the votes or, or they'd have whatever they needed to over override Cooper's veto. Now they've proved it with the first one, so we'll see if as more contentious topics come along over the rest of session, whether that continues. 
uh, let's go into the budget. Budget week, and, and just a little bit of, uh, to, not to tamp down the excitement of budget week, but for some context, and I think most of our listeners know, this isn't the big budget, it's not the final product, but this is the first house version, and uh, it it followed Governor Cooper's draft, which never really had much chance at success with the Republican-led legislature. It was shorter than we expected, only about 400 pages, but it still had some interesting things in there. Um, And especially one little nugget that you pulled out, Don, that you wrote an article about, and it actually affected change immediately, day of. It was really exciting. Tell us about that. It was really fun (laughs) to to do that. So uh, if you hadn't read our coverage yet, you know, everything's in coursenewsobserver.com. There was a provision in the budget that would move, it, it seems it's very in the weeds, but then also it's a very clear. So it would have moved someone from one retirement system plan to a different one. And it's a lot of money involved. And so it was the executive director of the Conference of District Attorneys would have been moved. Again, this is the House budget proposal. It doesn't mean it would have ended up in the final budget if the Senate wanted it in their budget or in the compromise budget. But it was so small and that people don't always pay attention to it that it that it could have uh, it could have ended up going through. What it would have cost taxpayers six hundred and forty two thousand dollars. And it was moving a state employee into the category of the retirement system for judges. And judges are a different category. And it's it's more than judges. It's more it's elected people have like very high responsibility in the court system. And so you get better retirement benefits, just like other government jobs, you know, depending on the, the type of work you do or how long you serve and that sort of thing. So uh, I wrote about it and I asked the big budget chairs about it and other lawmakers, uh, Durham Democrat, Marsha Moray, who's a former judge. I said, what do you think about this? And so there was an amendment that she was going to run that didn't end up um, being one of the amendments heard basically on Big Approach Day. When the budget is out, they that's the time to run any amendments and make any changes. So this was an all-day approach meeting. And I love the budget, but not that much. <laughs> Where it's all morning, all afternoon, you know, they broke at lunchtime. But it was fun because of watching how this played out. And after they went through all the amendments, and then there was this final amendment. And this is just only like, you know, a couple hours of the, you know, the story's out. People are asking about it um, because of shining a light on this, you know, this one page, this two pages in there. And so in the very final amendment, after people were really leaving the round, uh, Budget Chair Donnie Lambeth, the Forsyth uh, Republican, said, we're going to have this chairs amendment with all these technical things. It's just a technical amendment. There's all these little things. And I'm looking, looking, looking at the page, and someone pointed out the page and the line on it, and it was gone. And there was no mention of what it was, and then the meeting adjourned. And that happened because of because of that. If you read the story, more I told me later that it happened because of the story. And also, obviously, the lawmakers decided to take out, but they're um, aware of it. And I've talked to Lambeth after, I talked to... Uh, budget chair ARP after, and they said it was just, it needed to go, needed to go out. I had asked Sane before, and he said he, you know, wasn't aware of it. Again, this is a small thing, but once they saw that, it was uh, time to, time to take it out. So that was a fun, a fun budget event of the, of the week. And as you all are listening to this Monday or, or Tuesday or however you start your week, 
in uh, NCGA land. Um, House budget votes, I believe, are expected Wednesday and Thursday. I'm sure people will find more things in there. There's some other policy. Uh, there's uh, sort of Parents' Bill of Rights, not the um, the LGBTQ pronoun, more controversial and criticized aspects of that bill, but the other parts about um, putting curriculum or academic materials online at schools. And I asked this during the Republicans' press conference. I know other people have too, and people have written about it. What's the cost associated with this? Um, what's the burden on educators to do this? Uh, how are you going to, you know, backfill all of, all of the everything? You know, like can the website support everything? What's the process? What's the timeline? All of that. So I, there'll probably be more discussion of that maybe as it as it moves ahead. I think. Yeah, and in that vein, they also have elected to move the State Bureau of Investigation into an independent department which is interesting uh, There were legislators asking about the money involved in that as well and, and direct oversight. It's not entirely clear. Let's take a quick break, and then we're going to talk more about SBI and the budget and maybe cafeteria food and then our headliners of the week. So stick around. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer Politics reporter John Vaughn here with my colleague Lars Dolder. Before the break, we were talking about the budget, and Lars brought up some of the policy changes. I don't think it would be a Republican budget with a Democratic governor without some sort of uh, provision that would move some power around. So uh, the State Bureau of Investigation is is what we're looking at, and the budget on the House. Yeah, and I and I was actually sort of conflating a couple things when I mentioned it at first before. So there's the State Bureau of Investigation. Um, which would be removed from some of the authority that now belongs to the governor, who is, of course, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. And then there's also... Um, the crime lab. Thank you, the crime labs. And that's sort of a dig maybe at the Attorney General, Josh Stein, who's also a Democrat. So moving things around, sort of adjusting the power structure in ways that uh, might favor one party or the other. Um, typical stuff, but interesting nonetheless. And the SBI director had asked about it, you know, in a committee earlier in the week, but also they knew that was coming. So being the budget tied to that. Um, well, I think that the other thing with policy is that, of course, Cooper is a lame duck governor. He's running out his term. So they could be looking at 2024 with Stein. So it's like a future Stein power situation in case he wins or whoever the Republican is, whether like the broader party supports uh, Mark Robinson, if he's the one that uh, is the Republican choice and then uh, and then wins, it's to take some control from him. Or maybe it's looking at who the future attorney generals are. You know, Senator Danny Britt, Republican, has been rumored to run. Democratic uh, current member of Congress, Jeff Jackson, has been rumored to run. So are they are they thinking future political wise? Was it really just the internal need? Why not both? Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And irrespective of the governor's political affiliation, the legislature likes to have more power for itself anyway. It's not always Democrats versus Republicans. So it's a Republican-held legislature now, sure, but we remember when Pat McCrory was governor, and so it was Republicans with Republicans, and still they didn't like that he had some authority to do things they would have liked to keep in-house anyway. So exactly like you're saying, whether it has to do with, Gov with Cooper now, who's a Democrat, with Stein, who who is running for governor and would be a Democrat or another governor who is a Republican. The legislature just likes to keep things for themselves. And they always give themselves more power, which is really 
interesting to to watch play out. And already in North Carolina, the government, the governor doesn't have a lot of power. The lieutenant governor has almost no power at all. And every every cycle of legislation, the the, the general assembly is like, we're going to take a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And and that's what they do. So that's what a North Carolina or North Carolina's thing. So while we're talking about government and state government. Um, if you like the news, it was like a news, like monsoon this past week. I mean, obviously people are aware of, of, you know, Trump's, uh, um, crime situation and, and charges and everything. So we don't really need to touch on him nationally, but there's just been all kinds of stuff going on. But on the state government end, I had several stories drop, uh, that would be it. If you're listening to this on Monday, it was in your print edition on on Sunday, and of course it's online forever, uh, with a series of stories about all the changes coming to the state government side of downtown. Uh, North Carolina Freedom Park, which you've probably noticed under construction between the legislative building and the executive mansion, will open potentially in June. Eventually the bath building across the street is going to be knocked down. That'll happen this year. The dome on the Capitol is going to be replaced, or oh, the whole roof, all that copper, so it's going to change color. The Department of Administration is going to be knocked down, whether that happens this year, like in the, which was mentioned in a previous budget, or if it's next year or whenever. And then built in its place will be an education campus that includes community colleges, UNC system, commerce, and Department of Public Instruction. So all those workers are going to move. Other offices are going to the Albemarle. It's a long list of things. So you can just look. I wrote the reason I wrote multiple stories is because of like, here are all the logistics at play. And then for people that uh, do work in government or don't, but the broader the broader interest for for kids, for visitors, for tourists is that the dueling dinosaurs exhibit is going to open at Natural Sciences, which is the museum right next to the the giant globe. And that will actually happen this year. And I did a sidebar story on the places to eat in the legislative and other government buildings. So we don't have a lawmaker on the show today. So I mean, you could probably like Lars and I could have a whole episode about what we like at the cafeteria. But I did a I did a quick rundown on on what uh, what you can eat there. And if you look at the photo I took of the snack bar, you might see Lars in the background ordering. Do you remember what you were ordering that day? I think a double cheeseburger and fries with seasoned salt from the snack bar. Oh, yeah. It's all about the, the seasoning salt. So, all right. Well, let's get to our picks for, for headliner of the week. I'll go first. Mine is a, a serious one, a sad one. Uh, the It's related to the budget and local government. The city of Durham budget director, John Allure, or Allure, I don't think I've ever really said his name out loud, I guess, was um, killed on his bicycle. Uh, this past week, um, lives in Carborough, and it's um, really sad. He was a um, obviously a public servant, and when I covered Durham, he was very helpful. He was still in the budget uh, department there, but in a different position. And so, um, you know, wishing um, his memory a blessing to all those that um, that worked with him and that knew him and everything else. So, um, so he's my headliner of the week. Um, and for all the work that he's done and how he benefited Durham. So, all right, um, Lars, let's move on to your your headline. Yeah, yours is really nice. Um, mine's a little lighter than that. Uh, if if I think probably most of our listeners have followed to some degree the saga down in Florida between 
Governor Ron DeSantis, the legislature, and Disney, which is the state's largest employer. And it's had this weird kind of independent tax structure. It's been really interesting to watch. Uh, they've had some philosophical differences, Disney as a corporation and the governor. And so in what's largely believed to be retaliatory, he worked with the legislature to strip them of some of their powers. The first go around, they realized that if they actually took away that quasi-county structure, that it was going to uh, transfer a huge amount of debt to the surrounding counties. So they backed away from that, and they came up with this different idea to have uh, the governor in state members of this board that would oversee some of the goings-on there at Disney. So that's just a kind of a setup, because this week, in uh, whatever side of this you stand on, you have to appreciate what was some brilliant legal gymnastics by the folks at Disney, who no doubt can afford the best lawyers probably out there. They came up with this idea for the current board that's still Disney operated before the new one is instated to essentially strip itself of all of its power to do anything. And it will, in effect, roll over into the new board with members who are put there by DeSantis so that when they arrive, they don't have any power to oversee what happens at Disney. Now, this is the very best part. Um, in, in the declaration, which is legally binding, that, that takes away the power, it is valid until, and I'm quoting here, it's valid until 21 years after the death of the last survivor of the descendants of King Charles III, King of England, living as of the date of this declaration. Who were the descendants of I mean, they would, the line would have to end. So effectively, they're saying ad infinitum, it's effective. The board has no power. The current King Charles? Yes, King until he has no more descendants, until the last one dies, 21 years after that is when the board will regain its power. They just brought England into it? Yeah, for, for no reason. <laughs> it's so funny, but uh, what it's... Yeah, it is. It's um, now and naturally the legislature is very upset and uh, DeSantis and, and the folks that he's put on the board there. And so they're trying to find some legal retribution and maybe they will. We'll see what happens. Um, what's your favorite Disney movie, Lars? I wish you'd given me time to think in advance. What is it? Mine is Princess and the Frog. I love just the New Orleans and the music and just the the colors that are used to that, all the greens and the going down the bayou is my favorite song from Princess and the Frog. So anyway, that one's, or one of them. I like a lot. That's a good one. I um, I haven't seen this since I was like six years old. So I bet that there are problematic themes in there that I didn't recognize at the time. But I loved um, the Three Caballeros when I was growing up. That's a Disney movie, right? That's yeah. one of the earliest ones, I think. Los Tres Caballeros. It's a ride in Epcot in Mexico. Is there a couple, or it's got the theming in the ride or something like that? Yeah, I just love the music and the infusion of Hispanic culture was kind of neat. But now I need to go watch it again and make sure there's not like anything terrible in there. Well, there's um, Coco is like the one of the latest ones in Encanto that has like a variety of um, Spanish-speaking um, characters. So doesn't it doesn't have the sentimental value to me from childhood. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. I'm Don Vaughn with Lars Dolder. We'll talk to you next time.
For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.